All right, so take a little straw poll here um, as we get started. Does everyone agree that there's something wrong with the world? Any, any disagreement? Maybe you'd be... No, everybody's putting their hand up to yes. They believe that there's something wrong with the world. So what's wrong with the world? Maybe all of us in this room would agree. Maybe not. Maybe most of us would. But to say, even just to say that there's something wrong with the world is actually to embrace an inherently religious worldview. You know that? So even the, you know, many people that you rub shoulders with at your school or at your workplace, maybe you don't rub shoulders as much, but, you know, virtually rubbing shoulders or whatever, even if they don't believe in God, if they think that there's something deeply wrong with the world, that's actually really incompatible with their worldview. Because if you think there's something really wrong with the world, you are embracing a profoundly religious worldview. Okay? A couple of quotes here. Tim Keller, in a book called Making Sense of God, wrote this. Russian philosopher Vladimir Solovyov, I think, sarcastically summarized the ethical reasoning of secular humanism, stuff that we run into all the time, people around us, right? Like this, man descended from apes, therefore we must love one another. You see the disconnect? That's like a non sequitur. The second clause does not follow from the first. If it was natural for the strong to eat the weak in the past, why aren't people allowed to do it now? Given the secular view of the universe, the conclusion of love or social justice is no more logical than the conclusion to hate or destroy. These two sets of beliefs, man descend from apes, therefore we must love one another, in a thoroughgoing scientific materialism and in a liberal humanism simply do not fit with one another. Each set of beliefs is evidence against the other. Many would call this a deeply incoherent view of the world. So somebody that, believes, that, that doesn't believe in God pretty vociferously um, renowned Oxford evolutionary biologist and atheist, pretty well-known atheist, Richard Dawkins, said this, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So there's nothing wrong with the world. It's just some people get hurt, some people get lucky. So at least he's being consistent. But how many people live that way? Even people that claim to be atheists. 99 point however many percent of the people you rub shoulders with are going to have this deep, unshakable sense that things are not as they should be. So what is wrong with the world? And what's the solution to it? Is it a lack of education? That'll oftentimes be posited as the you know, silver bullet solution. Is it lack of money and opportunity? Is it lack of literacy or economic development? I mean, these are real problems, but they're not the deepest problems. I mean, some people make lots of money and it leads them to make more a mess of their lives. So if this is a Darwinian world, is there really anything wrong? 
Or is it just that things are more or less evolved? Good and bad are just kind of social constructs, you know? Because, I mean, like, lions are lions, right? Like, if a lion eats a antelope, he's not being mean. It's not evil. It's not wrong. He's just being a lion. But nobody lives like that. If a strong man rapes or abuses someone weaker and vulnerable. Nobody operates that way in regard to child abuse. So we need to help our culture see what's true. Because, you know, ironically enough, talk of sin in our culture is either politically incorrect or it's trivialized, isn't it? So don't tell someone that what they're doing is sin. Who are you to say, right? Don't tell me what I can do or can't do with my body. You know, certainly in the realm of sexual ethics or abortion rights or whatever. So who do you think you are to say that? So sin is politically incorrect, but it's also trivialized. The word sin might be more prevalent on the dessert menu these days than it is in our conversation about what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us. If we reject or mute and downplay the language, the reality of sin, we also reject the solution to our deepest problems. Because if we claim that things like addiction to alcohol or sex or drugs or lying or gluttony or sloth are really genetically determined, now listen, some of you are going to go, whoa, 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 what about, you know, like a crack baby? Okay, like, let's take those exceptional scenarios and set them aside, okay? What I'm talking about is these things have to do with choices, and those choices compound for the vast majority, okay? And actually, the more you feed these things, the stronger they get and the less, like, the more helpless you feel against them. But culpability is still there, Okay? So if, if we blame those things on, you know, being genetically determined or a chemical imbalance or whatever, then we're only going to need, what, pharmacological answers to our deepest problems, not mercy and forgiveness and grace and love and kindness from God. So I'm talking about our deepest problem. Our deepest problem is not a lack of self-esteem or a lack of education or a lack of opportunity. It's never the deepest problem. Our guilt is a pointer. We've all experienced guilt, right? And that's not just a social construction. I mean, sometimes it can go haywire, you know, and certain, you know, have this like um, bad side of fundamentalism. You know, people feel, women feel guilty for wearing pants. Like, okay, that's a problem. That's not morally wrong. But the reason we have guilt is because we're guilty. It's because God's law is imprinted on our souls. So we're reading a book, as elders called, The Story of Reality by Greg, Greg Kukul. He's a, a Christian apologist, really helpful, clear book. And he writes this, We feel guilty because we are guilty. And that's precisely what the story tells us. And this is God's story, the true story of Humanity. We are broken, true enough, but we are not simply malfunctioning. We are not machines that need to be fixed. We are transgressors who need to be forgiven. 
We've not merely made mistakes like getting our sums wrong when balancing accounts. We have sinned. And with sin come guilt, comes guilt. And with guilt comes punishment. The sin must be answered for. It must be paid for in some way, atoned for, if you will. And then a few more relevant thoughts from perhaps an unlikely place. How many of you know who Bono is? Okay, I see those hands. Um, so the band U2, lead singer. Um, not the person you might think to quote first for theology, but you might be surprised here. Listen to what he said in a 2005 book. It's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics and physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, so will you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts the consequences of of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out did not come back to us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. It should keep us humbled. It's not our own good works that get, get through the gates of heaven. Sounds like Bono may have read the book of Ephesians. So we are walking through the book of Ephesians here, and we started a couple weeks ago. Looked at chapter 1 where Paul just bursts out in this praise to God for what he's done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, so that was week number one. And he lists all these blessings. And then last week we looked at verses 15 to 23, which is Paul praying. He records his prayer for the Christians in Ephesus because... He wants them to deeply know the hope that they have and the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power at work in those who believe. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, and we'll see this morning, it's the same power that raised us from the spiritual dead, or from being spiritually dead. Okay? So... All these blessings, if you're in Christ, are yours, but it's so easy to just kind of know them in your head and for them not to affect your heart like they ought. And so that's why Paul prays that they would be real and sweet to us. And then he explains how powerful God's grace is to raise Jesus from the dead and then to raise us from the dead, chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. So that's what we're looking at this morning. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Let's read it together and then we'll dive in. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to well, actually, I think you might need to pick up a pew Bible and you can find our passage on page 967. So there should be a Bible 
in the pew in front of you, and you can find chapter 2 on page 967. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, so there's an outline. It's on the live screen page. If you haven't pulled it up already, you can pull it up there, um, or you can follow along. The slides will be here behind me with the outline. All right, so first point is by nature. We're going to see a contrast here. A big picture contrast in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is between who we are by nature by fallen nature, and who we are by grace. Okay, so that's the big picture perspective here this morning. So first we look at who we are by nature in verses 1 to 3. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So to put this in to the big story, to zoom way out, in the garden, God said, everything's yours. All kinds of freedom. You can eat from any tree except one. So, small restriction, massive freedom, and that one tree that I don't want you to eat from, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat it, you'll die. You'll surely die. So, I don't want you to die. Again, God's goodness all over the place. And we know the story. They ate. They bought the lie of the serpent. From the very beginning, it's the same strategy now, maximize the restriction, minimize the freedom. That's what Satan loves to do. You know, if you, if you trust Jesus, if you follow him, oh, it'll be so, it's going to steal your joy, steal your life, your fun. So they bought the lie, they ate the fruit. Did they fall over dead the moment they swallowed that bite of forbidden fruit? No. Does that mean they didn't really die? No, does a branch disintegrate the moment it's cut from the tree? No, but it's dead. So we're like cut flowers by nature. 
like in the garden, we, you know, you can imagine here's the branch and here's the trunk. You know, in the garden, we cut off the branch that supported us. We are all now, by nature, as human beings, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, bent and broken, cut off by nature from the spiritual life and vitality that can only come from God, our Creator. So we're like the walking dead by nature. Ray Ortland gives us an excellent description of being dead in sin and, and original sin and what it's like. He says this, Original sin is a negative energy within all of us that resists God in order to play God. That's what Adam and Eve wanted, right? They wanted to determine, to determine for themselves what was good. It is an irrational reflex of eagerness for rebellion and folly, heedless of the deadly impact, willing to risk misery and hell rather than bow before God. It's a kind of living deadness that only God can remedy. So, you were, by nature, I was, we all were, by nature, dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul's writing to Christians in Ephesus. They are not now dead in their sins. They're alive now. A miracle has taken place, which, you know, we're starting to get ahead of ourselves. So let's keep going here and look at the full description of what's gone wrong before we look at the solution. So we once walked in our sins following the course of this world, literally the age the age, the course of this age, okay, as opposed to the age to come, the kingdom of God that's breaking in where, where Jesus rules as King of kings and Lord of lords. So the Bible calls our fallen nature the flesh, right? You know, it says in verse 3, we, we once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's not just like skin. It's our fallen nature, Okay. When you get a bunch of flesh together in a society, it creates some current, doesn't it? So the course of this world. So human beings are sexually broken in their sin, and they lust, but you get a bunch of those people together, and you get porn and Pornhub, and you get an LGBTQ plus revolution. And you get sex as salvation kind of pumped everywhere in the media. You can have individuals who are angry and, you know, kind of kill people in their minds. You know, anger is kind of like the seed form of murder. That's why Jesus said, you know, don't think you're fine if you've never killed someone literally. You murder them in your hearts all the time. You get a bunch of people together, especially on Twitter, and you have a rageosphere, if any of you know Twitter. So you get materialism, you get nihilism, you get atheism, you get secularism. If you get a bunch of people together, it creates a current, and that current carries people quickly in the same direction. It's influential. So it's like social media and its Invention creates a current. So we've always been good at kind of curating our image and, you know, projecting like we want people to think the best of us and we can put the best foot forward, right? 
But you can imagine how Instagram, for instance, has fed envy because everybody puts the best foot forward and it creates this like, oh, wow, look at that vacation. I wish I was like, you know. So you see, individuals, we all have this stuff in our flesh, our fallen nature, but you get enough people together and it creates this current and it moves fast and it carries people along. And underneath is algorithms and autoplay and infinite scroll and clickbait and it encourages us to be like rats in a laboratory hitting the sugar hit button, you know? Like stimulation, stimulation, stimulation. So there are powers of seduction and deception at work in the world. The flesh, the world, and the devil. And they're working in concert. So, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So, prince of the power of the air is Satan. Okay, we live in hostile territory. God has an enemy. He slithered in in the garden. He is an enemy of your soul, my soul. That's why the book of Ephesians ends where it does. Your battle's not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Like, you need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. You need to put His armor on because there are hostile powers that are taking aim at you. And there are only two sides, two allegiances. You're either going to be a lackey a slave, a sheep, you know, of Satan, shepherded by him, or you're going to be set free to follow Jesus by his grace. So when was the last time, if you're a Christian, when was the last time you just stopped and thought of where you were before grace entered into the picture, before Jesus entered into the picture, before God just wakened you from the dead? I know I don't do this enough. It's so easy to just forget the slavery. I was such a slave. So many idols I bowed down to. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be in the inner circle. And I partied and made myself sick to be cool. Sports, I wanted success and respect. I wanted to be impressive. And it fed my pride if I was successful. And I got angry if I failed. I bowed down to Aphrodite. I wanted sexual satisfaction and was a slave to it. Okay, we could go on and on. So I was a slave following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And you know what? There's also a religious version of this, like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Self-righteousness is also demonic in its origin. <laughs> you don't need a cross. You can look down your, you know, your nose with contempt on all those people that are less righteous than you. That kind of pride is deadly. So you were spiritually dead in your sins. Maybe you need to take some time to think through where you were. This is our spiritual biography if you're in Christ. You were spiritually dead in sins, following the course of the age, following Satan like a Pied Piper, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. What does that language mean? Um, well, you know there was that guy Joseph in the early church, and he got a nickname, Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. What does that mean? It means he was an encourager. That was his character. So if you were a son of disobedience, it means 
dude, you're disobedient. That's just your character. Well, that's who we are. By nature, we're just bent on disobeying God. We want to go our own way. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, which again is a strange phrase maybe for us, but it means deserving of wrath. So if back in 2 Samuel 12, David refers to a son of death, means he deserved death. And we being children of wrath deserve God's wrath because of all this because of our sin. So a little review. By nature, we are spiritually dead, caught up and carried along by the current of our fallen world, course of this world. We knowingly or unknowingly kind of bow to and follow Satan. We're disobedient, sons of disobedience, disobedient to the good and wise law of God, and we're deserving of God's wrath. It's a predicament that we're in by nature. Like, these are seriously dire straits. And listen, this is like, this is real. This is personal. It's not just, oh, yeah, 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 I've heard this. No, like, this is, you are on a bullet train to hell by nature, apart from grace, apart from Christ. All of us are. We were not born good. We're not even born neutral. We're born bent and broken. You don't have to teach a toddler to disobey you. It comes naturally. So we can't flatter ourselves and think we're not that bad because, listen, I mean, I think just saying this kicks it up and we have to acknowledge it. We forget so much of the evil stuff that we've thought and said and done. We have selective memory. We downplay and justify. We put others on a tight moral budget and are very generous with ourselves by nature. We can't even trust our moral judgment. We can't look around, pacify our conscience by thinking that, you know, at least we're better than most because God, the judge, your judge, does not grade on the curve. The standard standard isn't Hitler. It's Jesus. So, our deepest, biggest problems, education can't fix them, legislation can't fix them, medicine can't fix them. Only Jesus can fix them. Only grace can fix them. So Thomas Watson once said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So Ephesians 2 starts out with the bitter truth. And the sooner that we acknowledge it, embrace it, the sooner the sweetness of Christ will be ours. So if you're willing to be honest about the reality and the depth of your sin, if you're willing to face and accept what God says about your sin, if I am, if you're willing to stand in the light and be exposed rather than trying to put up a front or rather than trying to hide and hide in the shadows and blame shift and justify and rationalize and downplay, if we are honest before God about our sin and rebellion, then what follows after this is the sweetest truth that we know. Point number two, but God. Look at verse four. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So one to three, by nature, you and me, we are in deep, deep trouble. But that's not the end of the story. But 
God, are those two of like the sweetest words in the Bible? God's not going to leave it there. He is not going to leave us to ourselves. He's not going to leave us to destroy ourselves. Because even though we have a nature that's fallen, guess what? God has a nature too. He is rich in mercy. Do you see the language there? But God being rich in mercy. It's who he is. He's rich in mercy and he's loving. Like it says in 1 John 4, God is love. And his love is great. In fact, his love is infinite. So look at it there. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. I mean, we've only just begun. You could be a Christian for 75 years. You've only just begun to plumb the depths of God's love for his people. You've only just begun to understand the dimensions of his love, how wide and long and high and deep it is. It's actually why in chapter 3, Paul's going to pray that they would have power by the Spirit to comprehend how deep and wide and long and high is the love of God for his people. And we have to know this love that surpasses knowledge. You need to experientially know it. So, by nature, we are a mess and we are in deep trouble. But God, he's not loving because he provided our salvation, although certainly that's true. He provided our salvation because he's loving. It's who he is. He didn't become loving once he provided a, a way of escape, a way of rescue and redemption. So let's look at this salvation that he's provided, how great it is. Point number three, verses four to seven. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he gives a nod back to verse one, made us alive. So you were dead. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So stop and think of who you were. Do you see how important it is to really think of who we were? And then think of who you are now. If you're in Christ, who are you now? This is a miracle of grace that's taken place. So J.D. Greer writes, um, you remember that book, uh, Jesus Continued? Um, I think it was a book we kind of pushed some years back. It's a great book. Anyway, so he has this quote in there, and he, and he talks about this guy named Nick Ripkin, who served for years as a missionary in Somalia, saw some really, really hard, horrible things. It was, it was a rough go. And Nip, Nick Ripkin says that persecuted church leaders in Russia, because later on he went around and interviewed a bunch of these persecuted Christians across the globe, Nick Ripkin says that persecuted church leaders in Russia who've experienced repeated miraculous acts of deliverance, which Ripkin describes as being of biblical proportions, only use the word miraculous to refer to someone's conversion and never to the amazing acts of deliverance. All other miracles, they say, merely assist in the greatest miracle of all, conversion from death to life. So does God still heal? Yep, he can do miracles. In Russia, where they were persecuted for their faith, do you, have you ever heard stories of how these people were trying to smuggle Bibles in and like the eyes of the guards were just almost like miraculously blinded, right? Miraculous provisions 
It all happened. It happens. But they are nothing compared to the miracle of salvation, going from spiritual death to spiritual life. And listen, this isn't just for the guy or the woman with a crazy, you know, like dramatic testimony out of drug addiction or prostitution or whatever, although that's wonderful. This goes for the child who grows up in a Christian home and comes to faith in Christ at the age of 10, even if they never dramatically, you know, kind of rebel, because still they're dead. And if they're alive in Christ, and especially if they haven't gotten self-righteous about it, that's a miracle. So you remember the prayer from last week? Paul prayed in 1, 15 to 23 that the the Ephesians would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. Do you see how he's explaining the immeasurable greatness of that power right here in chapter 2? This is resurrection power. It raised Jesus from the dead, and it raised us from the dead spiritually. We were dead in trespasses and sins, and now we're alive together with Christ. It's immeasurable power. This is God flexing his graciously omnipotent muscles. So he raised Christ, but he also raised us from utter deadness in sin, embeddedness in the rut of this world and its values, and freeing us from slavery to Satan. So God in Christ conquered Satan, killed death, and swallowed sin and its consequences on the cross. So what is salvation? This salvation that's so great? You know, by grace you've been saved. This is irreversible deadness. You can't fix that. To unkillable eternal life and hope. Like that's what's happened. It's a miracle. You were slave of Satan. You're now seated with Christ who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You went from a slave to seated with the King. Eternal condemnation and destruction to eternal acceptance, reconciliation, love, life, joy, peace, all of that. So look at the scope of this salvation in verse 7. So, context, but God did all that he did. He raised us together with Christ. Why? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages, like age upon age upon age to eternity, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches of his grace. Remember back at chapter 1, verse 7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. So the riches of his grace are immeasurable. Just just stop and think about it. What did it take for the incarnation to happen? That's immeasurable grace. That's an immeasurable condescension from infinite God to take on flesh and blood like God with us in human flesh. How do you measure that distance? How do you measure that humility? And he did it all in love and 
because of his grace? How do you measure the lengths to which God was willing to go to save us? It's the immeasurable riches of his grace. Or look at the cross, the immeasurable riches of his grace at the cross. Jesus suffered an infinite penalty on the cross. How's that possible? Because we're finite, right? He died for our sins. We're finite. I'm a finite sinner. You're a finite sinner. Well, here's the problem. We've sinned against an infinite being. So our sin is infinitely heinous. That's why hell is forever. So if Jesus is going to bear your penalty, he's going to absorb the just punishment. God's judgment, his condemnation, his wrath for infinite sin. And multiply that times all who ever have or all who ever will trust in Jesus for salvation. How do you measure the cost paid on the cross? How do you measure that love? That's infinite love. It will take, here's the thing. What is verse 7 saying? It will take eternity for God to display, to show, to enable us to grasp the riches of His grace. You are never going to get to a point in the new creation, you know, Jesus comes back, sets everything to rights, resurrected bodies like everlasting life. You're never going to get to a point, you know, like maybe in 10,000 years, you're never going to get to a point when you say, oh, is that it? Like, is that all there is? <sighs> no, we're going to be blown away forever. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? We're going to be blown away forever. How great is this salvation? And it is all of grace. It is all of God. So even though he's already said it once in verse 5, right? It's just kind of inserted there in verse 5. By grace you've been saved. He repeats it. Paul repeats it because he wants to make it abundantly clear. So point number four, by grace through faith, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, and if you just... Grammatically speaking, that this refers to the whole package. Salvation and faith, it's everything. It's not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So by nature, we're completely doomed. But God, and now by grace, if you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior, you have been saved. It is not your own doing, it's a gift. The gift of God. So salvation is not a wage. It's not a reward for good behavior. It's not the result of works. Otherwise, we could take credit, right? We could boast about it. But what do we have to boast of? All we brought to the equation, all we brought to the table was our sin. And Jesus said, I'll take that. Let me give you everything in me. Forgiveness, righteousness, reconciliation, hope, peace, life eternal, everything. So if you are a new creation in Christ this morning, if you're a new person, if you're a Christian, do you see how pride, especially spiritual pride, has no place in our lives? Christians ought to be the humblest of humans. 
God did it all. So let's, let's just contribute. Let's pray for this, right? Let's contribute to the reputation of Christians in Wilmington being the humblest of all people. Because you know what? That's not quite the reputation we've got in America, I don't think. But why, why don't we at least just focus on Wilmington or beyond, wherever you live? The people that know you. God did it all. See, if, if we weren't really that bad off and, you know, if our future salvation wasn't really that much better and if we contributed some to the equation, then maybe we could shrug our shoulders. Maybe we could just, you know, oh, what's for lunch? We could get bored with God's grace. You know, maybe it would make sense to get more excited about hobbies or food or sport or video games or movies or whatever instead of Jesus. <laughs> but there's no way we could, we could be bored or just kind of assume and forget about this great salvation if we really knew how great it is. Which is why Paul is reminding the Ephesians and he's praying that they'll really know it because it's so easy to forget. Or when we suffer, we think more about our sufferings than the greatness of our salvation. And if you're not yet a Christian, if you're here this morning or if you're watching on the live stream and you're not yet a Christian, you can get in on this. <laughs> you have just heard the best news in all the world. So back in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul wrote, In him you also, so he's saying, we have got all these blessings, but you, Ephesians, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So if you see your sin, you know how doomed you are unless Jesus rescues you. You can trust in Jesus to be your Savior. He will save you. All of this grace will be yours. So to use the language of Jesus, like in the Gospels, John chapter 6, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, comes to me for soul sustenance will never ever hunger. Whoever believes in me will never ever thirst. We're all thirsty. We're trying to slake our existential thirst, our soul thirst with all kinds of things and it never satisfies because only Jesus satisfies. And then a few verses later, he, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So you can come to him today and be welcomed in forgiven, cleansed, adopted, all of this grace, yours. In other language, in Acts 16, Philippian jailer, won't go into that story, but basically it was a kind of a miraculous occurrence with an earthquake and Paul and Silas are in prison and they're singing praises and everybody's still in there and the jailer comes in and he says, sir, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. <laughs> I like this quote by, I don't know who this guy is, Gerhard Ford. He's a German, probably. Um, he says, we are justified freely, made right with God, just in God's courtroom, for Christ's sake, by faith, without the exertion of our own strength. 
without gaining of merit or doing of works. To the age-old question, what shall I do to be saved? The confessional answer is shocking. Nothing! (laughs) Just be still. Shut up and listen for once in your life. I really quoted that because I wanted to say that. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just be still. Shut up and listen for once in your life to what God the Almighty Creator and Redeemer is saying to His world and to you in the death and resurrection of His Son. Listen and believe. Or in Romans 10, Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But all of us who are Christians, we need the gospel too. We need to remind ourselves of God's grace. So for all who are Christians, we would do well to heed this counsel from Martin Luther, Luther the Reformer. It ought to be the primary goal of every Christian to put aside confidence in works and grow stronger in the belief that we are saved by faith alone. Through this faith, the Christian should increase in knowledge, not of works, but of Christ Jesus and the benefits of his death and resurrection. So, by grace, through faith, in Jesus is not just the entry point into new life in Christ, it's the entire path of life following Jesus day after day. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We grow and progress by grace through faith in Jesus. So Paul moves finally from salvation by grace to our walk of faith. And he makes it clear that even that, all of that, is all of grace. So last point, walk, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in Greek, the word his is front-loaded in the sentence for emphasis. His we are. His workmanship we are. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. So human beings were created originally by God's mighty word, right? In God's image to glorify God, to have a relationship with Him. As a result, we died. As a result of sin, we died spiritually. But God is too loving, too merciful, too gracious to leave us to ourselves in the mess that we made. So He is at work recreating a people for His treasured possession. And He intends that we walk in that newness of life. So we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. But even those good works, look at it. He's prepared them for us. Again, so that no one may boast. So Paul makes it clear. These good works don't save you. They are the fruit of faith, which is the gift of God. Even the works are prepared by God. So we're not saved because of or by our works. We are saved for good works. We get megatons of mercy and grace from God, and God gets all the glory for what he produces in our lives because it's his work. It's his grace. We started out walking in darkness, enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We were sons of disobedience, children of wrath. Now in Christ, by grace, we are beloved sons of our loving Heavenly Father who has lavished rich mercy and great love and 
immeasurable riches of his grace on us in his kindness. So, Bill Hughes actually sent me something earlier this week. It was a little devotional. Um, I think John Piper has this devotional thing you can sign up for called Solid Joys. And I'm going to close with a, a quote here, and then we're going to sing Grace Alone again. Very fittingly, that song is so good, and it's like Ephesians 2 put to music. Ephesians 1 and 2 put to music. So the musicians can come on up and just listen to this last quote. Would you not love to hear the angel Gabriel say to you, you are greatly loved? Wouldn't that be cool? Like this afternoon, you know, you're taking a nap and all of a sudden, this isn't in the devotional, by the way, um, you know, like boom, angel shows up and says your name, Mike Ellsworth, you are greatly loved. And you knew it was Gabriel. You'd be like, I mean, that would be just like, like serious spiritual adrenaline just boom, shot into your soul, right? Well, three times that happened to Daniel. You know, of the lion's den, Daniel, Old Testament. So Daniel 9.23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you. This is Gabriel to Daniel. For you are greatly loved. Chapter later, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And then again in chapter 10, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And then Piper writes, I admit that each year when I read through the Bible and come to these verses, I want to take them and apply them to myself. I want to hear God saying to me, you are greatly loved. Anybody else? And then he says, in fact, I do hear this, and you can hear it too. If you have faith in Jesus, God himself says to you in his word, which is more sure than an angel of God speaking, you are greatly loved. There it stands in Ephesians 2, 3 to 5 and 8. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for, great, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is the only place where Paul uses this wonderful phrase, great love, and it is better than an angel's voice. If you have seen Jesus as true and received him as your supreme treasure, that is, if you are alive, spiritually alive, you are greatly loved greatly loved by the creator of the universe. Just think of it. Greatly loved. Let's pray. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. Open our eyes and unstop our ears and sensitize our hearts to see and hear and know how wide and long and high and deep and to know your love that surpasses knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen.